Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome back to Behind the Ninth. Today, we're going to follow up with our friends at COVID Surge. So while the pandemic has been raging, they have been hard at work studying the interface between COVID and all things surgery. And I've got to say, they produce some really amazing work in an insanely short amount of time. And, and this stuff impacts our day-to-day lives as surgeons uh, around the country and around the world. Um, you know, questions like how long should you wait to operate on a patient who has had COVID, symptomatic or otherwise? And what do you tell your patients about this? Uh, what is their risk? Can we calculate that? What about vaccines? Should an elective surgery wait until a patient has been vaccinated or not? Well, today we've got answers and I'm very, very pleased to be joined by Joanna Samoy, research fellow at the University of Birmingham in England and national lead for COVID surge. Dr. Brittany Bankhead Kendall, a trauma and acute care surgeon and assistant professor at Texas Tech University of Health Sciences Center. And Dr. Ryan Dumas, assistant professor of surgery in the division of burn, trauma, acute care and critical care surgery at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center and Parkland Memorial Hospital. So before we jump in, uh, Joanna, can you uh, remind us what, what COVID surgery is and how it started? Thank you, um, Patrick, for, for having us again on the podcast. So some of you might have heard um, the, the previous podcast and might have an idea of what it is, but basically the, the COVID Search Collaborative has evolved in the last year as a group of surgeons and anesthetists willing to deliver research around um, how safe it is to operate on patients who have a SARS-CoV-2 infection and what all, 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 all the research questions that we've been focusing on the last in the, during the last year. So basically in the last year, we've conducted three main studies. The first one focusing on mortality rates and, and you know, post-operative complications in patients undergoing surgery and having a perioperative SARS-CoV-2 infection. Then we, um, we delivered COVID surge cancer study, understanding what are the outcomes of cancer surgery during the pandemic, and also the, the side effects of COVID. So, you know, delays in surgery and the impact of that. Um, and then more recently in October last year, we've delivered what we think is so far the largest surgical study in the world um, about the optimal timing for, for surgery uh, after a SARS-CoV-2 infection. And so we've covered these three main research questions, but obviously other things have been analyzed in the meanwhile, and we're going to go through that today. Overall, the, the participation and the patient enrollment in these three studies were, was around um, nine, uh, 190 thousand patients from around 2000 hospitals, 120 countries. So it, it's been really, really amazing to see this, this huge um, collaboration across so many different settings. It's amazing, really over 120 countries, 1600 centers and 140,000 patients. That is research being performed on an unheard of, uh, really an unprecedented scale. So let's talk about these studies. This is big data with, with really big findings. 
uh, important stuff that we as surgeons need to know uh, for our day-to-day practice. Joanna, which study should we start with? So um, I thought maybe we could start with the studies we've delivered. Um, So we've talked before about our Lancet paper last year saying that mortality in um, surgical patients with a SARS-CoV-2 infection is high, is much higher than we would expect those patients um, for those patients in in, in the pre-pandemic era. And today probably we can cover a bit about what can we do to mitigate against that risk. So we can talk a bit about pre-operative testing and COVID-free pathways. So last year, um, later last year, we've we've published two papers on this. um, uh, And what we know from this is that it's essential to keep um, the pathways as free of COVID as possible. And we know this because we've analyzed patients being operated within cold hospitals and cold pathways um, even if they are um, uh, being operated in, in hospitals who admit COVID patients. So uh, patients being operated in such pathways have much lower rates of pulmonary complications after surgery than patients being operated in hospitals where there is no defined COVID-free pathway. And the difference in mortality is, is, is significant. It's from uh, 4.9% to 2.2%. So if, if, you, if you are to talk to your patients about this, this is, these are probably the numbers you want to have in your in your in your mind if they if they're going to ask you and something very important to keep you know covid away from from patients is also the preoperative testing and routine preoperative testing has been uh, proved as to be um, um, efficient uh, reducing pulmonary complications um, after surgery and we've calculated the number needed to test in high risk in in high risk areas as in high community incidence of of SARS-CoV-2, low risk areas, minor and major surgery. And they're all, you know, they're all, they all in favor of testing patients before surgery. Obviously, major surgery and high risk areas, you know, the number needed to test is very low, which which means that, you know, testing is very worthy. Um, And um, so for major surgery mainly, and then high risk areas in particular. And those are the two main findings from those studies. Um, and I guess Brittany maybe can tell us a bit more about the, the recent findings from the recent studies, and maybe then we can put it all together in, in what, how do we implement change based on this data? Yeah, Joanna, so another one of the um, big things that we wanted to look at with this big data set that we had was looking at vaccination modeling. We know that there are a large number of vaccines rolling out globally across all countries and different countries are implementing different risk stratification and different distribution of these vaccines. And as surgeons um, and anesthesiologists, our group really wanted to um, look out for our own patients and see, you know, first, are they at higher risk? And secondly, this number needed to treat of, uh, and we called it number needed to vaccinate um, of patients um, you know, are, are we, should we be doing a better job of vaccinating our surgical patients preoperatively in order to, um, you know, better mitigate their risk of death from COVID postoperatively? Um, so what we did was look at a, a primary outcome of number needed to vaccinate, like I said, to prevent one COVID-19 related death. Um, we looked at uh, both community incidents and case fatality data that was available on a global scale. And then we stratified that by age. 
Um, and not unsurprisingly, since we're here, we found that uh, that number needed to vaccinate was much more favorable in surgical patients than in the general population, um, especially when you look at that age-based uh, stratification. Um, and that most favorable group was going to be within patients who are 70 years or older and uh, needing cancer operations, so oncologic resections. Um, and globally, uh, kind of the number that is listed in our abstract there is that prioritizing preoperative vaccination in these patients needing elective surgery could potentially prevent an additional almost 60,000 COVID-related deaths um, in one year, uh, which is not a small number of uh, patients. So um, we felt like that was really important to get out there. And I know there's a lot of socioeconomic implications of that paper that definitely vary by country. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit later. And the other thing uh, that we really, I think, has hit the mainstream media um, the hardest has been looking at the timing of surgery to follow uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection. And so the aim of this paper was to look at the optimal duration of plan delay before surgery. Obviously, you can't delay every surgery. Um, Dr. Juma and I are both acute care surgeons, so sometimes that doesn't always apply to our surgical pathologies. But in general, um, we looked at both emergent and elective operations. Um, we looked at all patients, and we looked at those who had a preoperative SARS-CoV-2 diagnosis, and then how long after that diagnosis, when having an operation, um, what was their mortality like within those weeks following? Um, we looked at the zero to two week time period, the three to four week time period, five to six, and then greater than seven. Um, and we really found that this seven week mark is when you finally go back to having a mortality risk, morbidity and pulmonary morbidity risk that is the same as that of the general population. So anytime before seven weeks after a COVID diagnosis, or also importantly, someone who is still symptomatic from their COVID, um, those people are going to have a higher morbidity and mortality um, on a very large scale. So um, we, we think this is very, very applicable globally, um, easily, uh, I think it's easily referenced too in terms of your um, risk benefit discussion with patients. Make an, an extra comment. I think there is also another important finding in this study, which is for patients whose symptoms have not resolved at seven weeks after they have been infected, there is additional benefit uh, to delay more until the symptoms get resolved. And I think this ha this can have an important uh, uh, in, in, this can be very impactful in our clinical practice when deciding. And something that people might want to take from this paper as well is that we have presented on the paper, uh, you don't have odds ratios, you have adjusted mortality rates. So when you are consenting your patients, you can actually say uh, you are expected to have a mortality around this with this much confidence. Okay, so you can actually inform patients about their risk. And something that we have developed as well from our COVID search um, uh, study, uh, uh, the first one is a mortality risk score. So we're, we tried to 
we, we used machine learning techniques to tr try and predict mortality for each case. And something very interesting in this, in this paper that is under review right now is that um, most of the factors that you know, made their way through the final model, which was accurate and with a good you know, performance, um, are factors related to the patient and not to the surgery which is quite interesting because we, we might say, okay, some surgeries might have, you know, higher risk of this and that, and those patients, if they get COVID, they, they have higher mortality rates, but that factor actually didn't make it into the model. So it's a lot about patients, age, ASA grade, cardiac risk, and also if they had needed um, uh, respiratory support for surgery. Um, so I think all these little, you know, all these uh, little bits will come together and inform surgeons to make their decisions with their patients, hopefully. Yeah, and that's pretty amazing that you could suss that all the way out to the seven week mark. And is that applicable to patients who are also asymptomatic when, when having COVID? Yes, definitely. So this, uh, we've done the main analysis for all patients with preoperative COVID, and we've done sensitivity analysis for patients uh, who had an asymptomatic infection, a symptomatic infection, whose symptoms have already resolved at, time, at the time of surgery, and also for the group whose symptoms have not already resolved. And because we've done those kind of subgroup analysis, uh, we know that the, mass, the message prevails in all of them, but definitely if, you, uh, if the patient still has symptoms at seven weeks before surgery, the, the, the mortality rates are higher compared to the ones whose symptoms have resolved. So it's definitely worth waiting for the symptoms to resolve. So, so a number of really impressive findings. You're talking about a COVID-free pathway decreasing from 4.9 uh, mortality from 4.9 to 2.2%, mainly through testing. Vaccination, uh, if uh, we vaccinate these elective uh, patients undergoing elective surgery, especially oncology cases, decreasing deaths by up to 60,000 per year, uh, waiting for greater than seven weeks, and the development of a risk calculator for, for informed consent. So that's a, a lot of uh, uh, strong information, but uh, Dr. Dumont, maybe you can help us. How does this affect you at UT Southwestern? What does this mean, you know, day to day, and uh, uh, especially when you're looking at elective cases? How, how has this informed uh, your institution's uh, approach and your individually? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the the surgical timing piece is really helpful because you know ordinarily, even even elective or semi-elective cases that, for example, we were seeing through the ED. And we might have teed up for an operation in a week or two if the uh, if the, uh, the outpatient center was open or the ambulatory surgery uh, center had a cancellation. We, in a patient that was asymptomatic or COVID cleared by CDC guidelines, we would have booked that patient for for an operation. Uh, and you know, really, as Joanna kind of points out, these patients, uh, from as we can tell from the study, really have a substantially increased mortality. Now, you know, I do wish um, that it was sometimes if you read. If, the separation is between minor and major procedures. Uh, and I wish there was a little bit more uh, specialty specific operations, because I think that would help me clinically for sure uh, if I had an operation that was more uh, specific uh, to, to my field. And then I could really drill down and tell my patient, hey, you're going for a thoracotomy with a lung resection. Uh, and therefore, you're, that patient's probably going to be at an even higher risk compared to somebody who is for a non-pulmonary procedure. Um, but I really do think as far as being able to educate our patients uh, and give us give the best decision, it's inc incredibly impactful. And I think as we start to tackle the backlog of cases now, it's going to help us kind of whittle that down in a logical way and figure out what patients should go first. So 
And that kind of ties in with the vaccination, right? Is is how we're going to tackle this this backlog of cases. So for for me now, it, when I see patients who are an elective, even maybe like a colostomy reversal, you could argue you could argue that in a common patient who wants to get that get that reversed, uh, that you know that's that's really a quality of life issue. But I would still wait now, uh, as opposed to maybe booking that earlier. Yeah, let me pose the same question to you, Dr. Bankhead Kendall. What what's uh, in, in uh, Texas Tech? What are you guys seeing on the ground uh, and how do you take it? You know, you especially being uh, a huge part of these studies, how have you yeah. made them at an institution-wide level? Yeah, I um, I mean, I've talked with a couple of people about this that early on I had um, I, I had a patient that fit this exactly. Um, she had a really bad um, course of COVID in the ICU and then needed an operation a few weeks later that was a semi-elective uh, type procedure, but the patient was clinically much better. Um, and that patient didn't have a great outcome. And, and honestly, I, you know, so now it, it really resonates with me personally as a surgeon and in my informed decision-making with these patients that even though they're sitting in front of you and they look so much better and it seems like something of the past, um, this, this study is really, really important and it's good hard data um, to be able to take to them and their families and to discuss that even though they're frustrated and even though it's, um, you know, a, a little while longer until we, till we operate on them, uh, that, that they do have a very real risk of pulmonary complications and mortality. Um, and then I think, you know, also like Dr. Dumas mentioned that, um, you know, we talk about these vaccines and their distribution and, um, and everything, but but something that's kind of been brought up in COVID surge uh, when we've gotten a little bit of heat from this, again from the socioeconomic and high income countries where distribution is going along pretty well, quite honestly, um, in the big scheme of things. But that doesn't necessarily mean that people are getting the vaccinations. Um, so in the U.S. and in the U.K., you know, there's a lot of people who are choosing not to get it for for whatever personal reason. Um, and so again, just because they've been offered the vaccine doesn't mean that they've gotten it. And so if you're having that discussion with them about their colostomy reversal or their hernia or whatever, um, you know, having a real informed discussion about getting that vaccine preoperatively, uh, I think is, is part of our job and our duty to our patients. Definitely, Brittany, if I may, I think there are like two levels of impact of this work. So you have the patient level of impact, informed consent, data-driven decision-making. And then probably we, we also have another challenge, which is taking this data to our um, hospital directors, whoever manages the, the vaccination pathways, the, the, the COVID-free pathways, if they exist, if they don't exist, who can we involve to get that happening? Um, I, I think there are two levels to the impact of this. And I would say that one thing that whoever is listening to the podcast should take from this is that surgeons can be change makers based on this data. They can be change makers in their own settings. And obviously um, the low resource settings need to be different, you know, in terms of implementation of change it needs to be different of course uh, but we we sort of account for that when we we do the estimates in many of the papers and right now we're trying to 
build up a, a web page with all the data easily accessible in one place for people to know what is um, what are the key findings from the, the several studies we've done and the several papers we've published and how they can take that into their practice uh, in their setting and, and kind of implement change there. Um, so, so I think that that's a challenge for everyone listening. Yeah, and you know, COVID has been awful for everyone, but there has been some silver linings and that includes you know, the amazing pace at which vaccines have been developed and are now being distributed. Uh, also, uh, to doing research like this. Uh, this is a, a massive international study. And I think you mentioned one of the papers, maybe the largest surgical paper ever published in terms of sheer number. Um, maybe, uh, Joanna, you could start off by telling us a little bit more about how this is all played out, what kind of challenges, how you built up the network, uh, et cetera. So the network that we have today is kind of a, a result of previous networks that got involved in, in global surgery in the past and also people that because of COVID or other reasons just heard about the study um, um, through many ways like social media and, and everything and all the colleagues that took part in stuff before. So the, the, the global surgery unit, which is based here in Birmingham, but very much uh, a collaboration across different countries, um, has been created a few years ago to deliver research um, that can um, expand the, the impact of the, the hypothesis tested and the interventions tested. So uh, the goal is very much to um, not do research just directed to high income countries, but also um, involve low and middle income countries in that. So the findings can be translatable to them as well and applicable to their settings as well. And I think it's been it's been um, a, a journey. And sometimes you think, oh, I've seen it all in collaborative research. You haven't because there is always something else and a new study where, you know, a whole new bunch of people take part. And I think it's um, it it's time to say, you know, a big, a massive thank you to all the national leads, local leads, collaborators that have contributed to this, to this body of work. Um, obviously, the, the, the question there that you might ask is, where are we leading? And I think that after, you know, now we, we've delivered three big studies in the last year, uh, we probably need a bit of a breathe now to publish what we need to publish and, and get the, the public and uh, the clinical impact of that as well. But where are we heading? And probably that needs to be, um, you know, that needs to be a conversation within the network. Uh, what is the future of it? And, and there are some global surgery topics that can be addressed. So um, hospital capacity around the world, hospital resilience to COVID waves and other hospital pressures around the world, um, post-operative um, outcomes around the world, a lot of questions that could, you know, be very relevant for the clinical setting and for the global health setting as well. So, so I think there are, there is definitely room for the, the network to reinvent as well. And to that end, uh, Dr. Dumont, this is a absolutely massive network and it can be leveraged in countless ways. What kind of, what kind of questions would you want answered? I would love to know um, long-term outcomes of COVID patients. I mean, I know that's it's notoriously difficult to find long-term outcomes really in, in, in many surgical domains, but long-term outcomes of COVID, I think will be particularly interesting because 
the study itself suggests that sometimes these patients, or not sometimes, beyond seven weeks, they're still they're symptomatic and they have worse outcomes. So this is clearly not a disease course that's very typical as far as uh, other, you know, flu, to, to, to use flu as an analogy, but uh, it's a very different disease course. So I think the long-term outcomes would be particularly interesting and leveraging the, the size of the network would be, I think, very useful to do that. The two, I think, Patrick, the two things for me that I'm looking forward to seeing studied more and more too is, you know, for one, we don't know how long these vaccines last. Um, is it going to be that we need a yearly booster? Is it going to be that we need a five-year booster? And, you know, does your mortality risk go up and down based on your vaccination status of your booster or does it not really matter? Um, so I think long-term follow-up for that is going to be important as well. Um, and then, you know, also just from a system standpoint, and I think Joanna would probably agree that that's another thing that we have really learned about in this collaboration is establishing these, um, these collaborative network systems about hospital level, regional level, national level implementation of almost disaster medicine in a way. And how do we, um, another thing we're working on is, you know, resilience in our surgical systems and the ability to come back from a backlog of operative cases and the ability to um, translate all of these, you know, lost preventative, you know, screening things that we lost over the last year and, you know, moving that along. And uh, so I think from a system standpoint too, utilizing what we have learned and implementing that for, for now in the immediate future, but also for the you know, long-term future when inevitably something of this will happen on some level for all of us again. And I think, Patrick, um, not related specifically to COVID, but I think the size, the scale, the power of this network can um, function as horizon scanning as well for where do surgeons want to go in the future, um, uh, you know, some, some, we've done a little survey around December about the trends of surgery in the next five years. Are people seeing themselves, um, you know, doing robotic surgery everywhere? Are they seeing themselves or do they don't even have capacity to uh, do, you know, pre-op diagnosis in, in timely for surgery? So there are a lot of asymmetries around the world. And I think the, the power of this network can also point the direction for areas to improve in different settings and what, what surgeons want from research and from, you know, development of, of, of their clinical work. Right. And even at the most, the, the most basic level of providing surgical care, that's, that's again, potentially provide some really interesting uh, answers to these questions. So is there anything else that we should, we should cover based on the work that uh, COVID surgeons has been doing? Well, I guess I have a question for Joanna. Joanna, if you're a hospital administrator or a, I guess, you know, a country or looking to develop and use your surgical vaccination data, what would you do? I mean, should we prioritize surgical patients to get vaccinations over uh, the general population and potentially high-risk immunocompromised patients? I, I'm just curious. I think it's really compelling data, like the number needed to vaccinate that you guys presented. Yes. So I think... Um the answer is, is yes. So I, I think it's worth prioritizing these patients. The number of lives you save with the same number of vaccines is definitely higher. 
So if, if you are to prioritize these patients, you will save more lives. That, that's, you know, overall the general populations. So one could argue, okay, but I also have oncology patients undergoing chemo that might need those vaccines as well. And obviously this study in particular is not saying that a surgical patient, you know, you can save more lives by vaccinating surgical patients over chemotherapy patients. So there is always... You know, ideally, you would know the number needed to vaccinate for all those groups and you would just, you know, um, rank them by how, how many lives you would save and then you would give the vaccines. It, that, that would be in, a, in an ideal world, which we don't have, but we've tried to contribute with what the benefit would be for surgical patients. So the answer is yes, they should be prioritized. Um, and I, I guess the questions for, for the future, as Brittany said, are probably how many doses and uh, when should that vaccine be done, be, be given to the patients? So uh, uh, around, you know, from the data from the vaccines trials, you would expect the immunity to be, you know, up enough, enough around two, three weeks after the first shot. But obviously if you can give two shots, it's probably better, but some patients might not be able to wait that long because of the urgency of their surgery. So that bit is obviously still needs to be um, ironed out, but the answer is yes. Patients should definitely be these patients should definitely be uh, prioritized. Yeah, I think your last point is really interesting too because I mean the data would suggest that you know, after 14 days after the first dose of Moderna or Pfizer, you may have up to 80 percent uh, immunity. So I think you could certainly argue to maybe prioritize the first dose. Um, I just I think it's interesting because the people that had the the patients that have access to surgical care. And the patients that have access to vaccination tend to tend to be have access to surgery and have access to healthcare and the health healthcare infrastructure and tend to be of higher socioeconomic uh, standing. And so I wonder that if we're forgetting the vulnerable patient populations, the high risk patient populations, and not and, and shunting away vaccinations from that already high risk group, uh, and there and then we don't know the outcomes of those groups, you know, based on that study. And so that to me is just it's an interesting, you know. Uh, you know, quite, quite honestly, dilemma. And I think uh, it's worthy to note, because even though we're vaccinating at really, really high rates, it's still only about just just under 20% of the population in the United States is vaccinated. So there's still a chunk of, of those high-risk patients that are out there, and then we don't know what's going to happen if we prioritize vaccination away from them. That's all, especially because they already uh, probably have uh, decreased access to healthcare. Absolutely. Just another way that COVID cuts across uh, socioeconomic lines. Brittany, do you think you could help us close this out with some key points? Yeah, uh, so for me, and I think for any surgeon, surgical trainee, all of us within the perioperative system, uh, the things to take away are for any patient who has had a COVID diagnosis of any kind, symptomatic or asymptomatic, waiting until that seven week mark post COVID uh, is a good idea uh, before you do any kind of operation. Uh, when able and when safe to do so. Um, if you have any patient who has had a COVID diagnosis and they are still symptomatic, waiting even beyond that seven week period is uh, very important. And then um, as Joanna said, I think on, on whatever scale you wanna, you wanna call it, prioritizing our surgical patients um, and looking out for them and their perioperative mortality and pulmonary morbidity risk and uh, ensuring that they are vaccinated when and if able to, um, or at least having an informed discussion with them about it 
preoperatively um, is is really important. Great. We appreciate having all of you guys on today and appreciate the uh, informative work that COVID Surge is doing. And uh, hopefully we'll even get you back on again to, to talk about some long-term results. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks, Patrick. Until next time, dominate the day.